In order for us to understand that and to read what's happening in chapter 3 especially, we need to make sure that we understand the culture, right? So, in order to see that this truly is a love story of redemption, a, re a kinsman redeemer, a family redeemer, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the things that happen in chapter 3 and what it meant in the culture of Ruth at that time. So, during the Israelites' uh, time, they had some really specific inheritance rules. And the inheritance rules were all for the benefit of the men and not for the women, right? So the Israelites' culture uh, made it so that inheritance was passed on through the son or through all the male heirs, not through the women or the wives or the daughters. So we know that way back in the beginning in the in Pentateuch in the Pentateuch in Deuteronomy 25 5 through 10 God makes some provisions to save the widows and the women from these inheritance laws right so some of the of the things that it talks about in Deuteronomy 25 is basically something that God puts in place to protect the women and kind of take out the pain and suffering that's going to occur because of the Israelites' rules about inheritance. And so we've already learned about some of those, but just to put back into context, there was the kinsman redeemer, depending on which version of the Bible you're reading, or the family redeemer, right? And so this family redeemer was a relative who could volunteer to marry this widow and take care of her family and continue on the family name, right? So in Deuteronomy, the law said that a widow can marry a brother of her dead husband if there was one. If there wasn't one, then the next closest male heir or closest male relative could marry this widow to continue on the, the family tradition. She would be able to keep her land then. She would be able to keep the family name. And then hopefully she would have children. There would be a male heir and the, and the land, or because remember in this time, land was wealth. So the land would stay in the widow and um, her husband's family line. Now, it didn't say that you had to do it. So a lot of times in the law, it was a commandment you had to do. But this was something that was a uh, that the, the closest kin could do if they wanted to. But they could say no and not take on the widow. So then it would go to the next closest male. And then he could choose to become the family redeemer, the kinsman redeemer, or not. And if... It never happened that someone decided as a male um, family member to marry and become the kinsman redeemer for the widow, then she just never had an inheritance. And it was a really terrible life. It was really hard. And so she would then be put into, and any of her female children, right, until they would get married, would be put into this state of poverty. And so we know that when we were back in the beginning of Ruth that she started out gleaning, right? And we learned that gleaning was also one of the things, one of the laws, one of the provisions that God put in place to protect the widows and the poor and the orphans. And that was where when they were harvesting, when the Israelites were harvesting, they left the corners of their fields unharvested so that people could come in who didn't have their own fields or didn't have a way to buy grain and food, collect it and take it back. So it was kind of um, their soup kitchen of the day, right? So 
family redeemer, kinsman redeemer, and then we have our gleaning laws. The next thing that happens in the story or where the story takes place is something that we also might not be super familiar with. It's the threshing floor. And in the Bible, it talks about the threshing floor a lot, and it's really symbolic. But what the threshing floor is actually in this story, it does have symbolism, but the fact that he's there, right, and, and Ruth gets sent there by her mom or her mother-in-law, Naomi, we need to understand the threshing floor because it's not some glamorous, nice place. So the threshing floor is the place where the grain will be taken after harvest. It usually was either a rock floor or a really hard dirt floor. It was outside of town and it was usually up on a hill because they needed wind to blow to help in the winnowing process. And the men and the servants and usually oxen or some kind of animal would go with them. They would beat the wheat or the, or the barley until the chaff, which is like the um, husk or the covering, right, would separate from the kernel because you want to keep the kernel and you want the chaff to blow away. So being up on a hill or outside somewhere where it's windy would help in that process because when the wind would blow through, it would blow away the coverings, the chaff, right, that they didn't want, and it would just leave the kernel. So it helped them in this. Now, for some reason, Boaz is there all night long, and it's kind of confusing because he's, he's like the boss guy, right? But there's two reasons why Boaz probably stayed there. One is simply because they would, it would keep people from stealing it, right? Remember, you're outside, it's up on a hill somewhere, it's dark, and people could come steal their barley or steal their grains, steal their food. So just for protection. And then the second reason is that they would be on shifts, right? He's just waiting his next turn. So during this time, they would harvest all day, they would take it to the threshing floor, and then they would eat and drink and be merry, as we'll talk about, but then they would have to take turns at night doing the threshing, the winnowing, because then the next day they had to harvest more, right? And so that process during the harvest would continue and continue. So most likely Boaz is just staying there all night for those two reasons and just waiting his turn, right? He's waiting his turn to be woken up and them to say, okay, it's your turn to do this hard work. Now, another thing that makes us feel like this is kind of a, uh, 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 crazy situation is it talks about laying at the feet of the master, right? So in this time, this really wasn't like a seductive act in any way. This was um, a, a symbolic gesture saying, I am under your house, under your rule. So during this time, the servants or the slaves of bosses often would sleep at their feet. It was very symbolic. It showed here he is. This is the person, the house that we belong to. We're his workers. And then often they would share the cloak or the cover, that covering or a coat type of thing that their boss had on, right? Because they all have to sleep because you want your workers to sleep because you want them to be really good at harvesting the next day and work really hard, right? So another thing culturally in this time that would happen that you need to understand is that often the cloak that the, the man of the house or the person who owned the, the farm, the boss, would have on, would have like their insignia, right, on it. And with that insignia, it was of their house, right? Like I go straight to, I was a literature teacher for a long time for middle schoolers, so I go straight to Harry Potter, right? And like you're in the house, right? You're in Slytherin or you're in, no. He, 
he always finds a way to come back to this show. I told him last week, I thought you were going to make it, and then at the last second, you threw a reference in. See, he didn't even let me get past it. Had to throw it in. So, anyway, back to this. The, um, the, it would have a signet on it, right? And so ceremoniously, if you were sold to or purchased or redeemed, because redeemed was when someone would purchase a slave to set them free. That's what redemption was, right? So if, if you purchased someone or you made a transaction in a sale that included um, a, a person coming to work for you, they would take their cloak and put it over them to signify you're now under my wings, right? You're now in my house. You're now a part of my clan or my group or my people, okay? You work for me. It, they didn't sign contracts that said, I now work for so-and-so, right? So that's what this is. Now, it seems really crazy at first if you read it and you don't understand those pieces. So, like straight from the beginning of the whole thing. So we're going to get ready to read through chapter 3. But before we do, let's do a really quick recap of what we know has happened so far in the story. Because we're at the halfway point, right? So we're at chapter 3 of the four chapters. So far, we know that Naomi and Ruth were widowed, they, that Ruth is from Moab, she's a Moabite, she's not allowed to, uh, you know, be a part of the Israel, she was not part of, they were enemies of the Israelites, but she chose to go back with her mother-in-law to Bethlehem, and she said, your God is my God. So Ruth is, has a conversion, right? So she's following the Israelite God, Yahweh, so she's following God. We know that she's a go-getter, that she's a hard worker. We know that she didn't just sit around and say, okay, you know, woe is me, we don't, we're widows, we don't have any food, we don't have anywhere to live. She went out and took charge, right? She's a businesswoman, she said, we're gonna figure out something to do. So she goes out and she starts gleaning so that she can support her mother-in-law and herself that they have food. We know she ends up in the, remember we said by luck, um, but not really, in the field of Boaz. And so Boaz is this really great guy who notices her. So we know that Boaz took notice of her. He asked, who is that woman? Then his workers tell him who she is. And then he puts out some protection rules, right, around her with his workers. And then he goes even farther than that. He talks to Ruth and he tells her that she should stay with his people. Don't go to other fields. You're safer here with me. Hang out with my female workers. You'll be safe. And then he goes even farther and says, let's have some food, okay? So then they have a meal together. And he doesn't always just take care of Ruth. He's also taking care of Naomi. So in this instance, he also then says you know, take your leftovers, what she ate till she was full, take it to Naomi, to your mother-in-law. So we know that Boaz is looking out for the mother-in-law and for Ruth, and we know that they've known each other for a while at the point in the story, right? So at the end of chapter two, it said that she had been gleaning in his field um, sent all the way through. So she worked in his field until the end of the barley harvest, so that was one harvest, and then through the wheat harvest, okay? So that's where we're at at this point in the story. They know each other. They, this is the, they kind of like, like each other, right? I told you I work with middle schoolers all the time and high schoolers. So they're like thinking about going study kind of phase if you're talking about that, right? So that's where we're going to start in chapter three. So in chapter three, Naomi comes up with a plan. Now remember, Naomi's a mother-in-law, right? 
and my mother-in-law's here, so mother-in-laws are awesome, right? No, I'm just kidding. I would never say anything bad, but she happens to be, it's just like, you know, when you have friends, they're like, we got to get you update, right? Like all of you. So college students, you go home and your parents are like, who are you dating? Who are you seeing? You like anyone? You know, right? They are always doing stuff like that. And even when you get a boyfriend or a girlfriend, they're still like, oh, tell me about this. What'd you guys do? Where'd you go? Right? We're just always up in the business about that kind of stuff. So, so Naomi's like, it's time for us to give Boaz the opportunity. We need to get a ring on it, right? She wants him to put a ring on it. So she gives her this plan. And to us, the plan is the crazy part. But in reality, instead of this being like a seduction scene where she wants her to go in and woo him over, really, Naomi is giving Ruth the, um, the opportunity to follow God's plan, to follow God's rules, to follow the traditions of the Israelites, and to go and request that Boaz become their kinsman redeemer, their family redeemer, and marry her. So yes, there is a proposal, and yes, it is Ruth asking him to marry her and become their family redeemer, but it's not nearly as kind of um, sketchy as it feels like it is when we first read it if we don't understand what's happening in this culture. So let's read this first part of Ruth chapter 3. It says, One day Naomi said to Ruth, My daughter, it's time that I found a permanent home for you so that you will be provided for. Boaz is a close relative of ours, and he's been very kind by letting you gather grain with his young women. Tonight he will be winnowing barley at the threshing floor. Now do as I tell you. Take a bath, put on perfume, and dress in your nicest clothes. I think this is a biblical mandate for makeovers and new outfits, right? No, I'm just kidding. It's totally not. No, I, I could say Esther is, right? A whole year of that, but not here. So she just tells her to get cleaned up, right? Because that's part of the culture. If she's going to go speak to a man, all right? So then go to the threshing floor, but don't let Boaz see you until he's finished eating and drinking. Be sure to notice where he lies down. Then go uncover his feet and lie down there. He will tell you what to do. Now, all of this still sounds a little crazy, right? So she's going to sneak in to the threshing floor, find out where Boaz is going to go to sleep, and pay attention to where he's at. Because remember, it's going to be dark. So she has to lay at the feet of the right guy, right? And then she wants her to uncover his feet. Now, lots of people have debated what this means, okay? So some people say that it means so that he, you know, that he just wakes up, right? So she uncovers his feet. It's the, it's the threshing floor, so there's wind, right? And the chaff is blowing around, so chances are it's going to wake him up because Ruth is taking a risk, Okay, so chapter three is about Ruth risk taking. So she's taking a risk going to the threshing floor because women weren't supposed to be there, right? She's taking a risk by asking Boaz to be her family redeemer, and she's taking a risk that he's going to say no, right? Or I don't think so because that is allowed to happen. So it's pretty risky. So she needs him to wake up at, in the nighttime so that they can have a conversation. So she uncovers his feet. Now, some uh, scholars will say that that was just part of the tradition and that uncovering his feet meant that then he could put the blanket, or the cloak over um, her as a servant later to welcome her into his house. We just don't know. We just know that that's what they said. So she uncovers his feet. And 
It worked. So then, it sounds kind of risky and crazy, but <laughs> here's what Ruth says. I'll do everything that you say. So she's like, okay, it sounds kind of crazy, but I'm going to go ahead and do it because I trust you. So verse 6, so she went down to the threshing floor that night and followed the instructions of her mother-in-law. So now we're going to cut over in, in verse 7 where Boaz is finishing eating and drinking. And here's what it says. After Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he lay down at the far end of the pile of grain and went to sleep. Now remember, he's going to sleep by the grain. Why? So nobody steals it. Because this is his money, right? This is Boaz's money. He owns these fields. And then also, it's probably farthest away from the noise, right? Remember, they're hammering, they're beating, and they got all kinds of work going on over here where they're separating up the, the stuff. So then Ruth comes in quietly, uncovers his feet, and lays down. Around midnight, Boaz suddenly woke up and turned over. He was surprised to find a woman lying at his feet. Who are you, he asked. Now remember, women aren't supposed to be at the threshing floor, right? So rolling over and having someone at your feet wasn't such a big deal if it's just a worker, right? Remember, they're on shifts. But he rolls over and there's a lady down there. There's a woman. And so he's really shocked by this. And he's like, who are you? So she answers, I am your servant, Ruth, she replied. Spread the corner of your covering over me, for you are my family redeemer. So she just throws it out there, right? She's like, we need to get married. We need you to redeem our family, right? So she is not shy. She is a risk taker. So she proposes, and it's not a fancy, you know, romantic proposal. They're in the, on a dirt floor, on a stone floor. She's taking these risks. She's where she's not really supposed to be. Remember I said there's sometimes oxen, right? So like it's kind of like a barnish place, and it's a little bit dirty, but she goes out and she does what her mother-in-law tells her to do. She follows the rules and the regulations, she does it right the way that God sets up this plan, right? So she follows the rules. And remember, she doesn't have to because who is she? She's the Moabitess, right? She's from Moab. And the people in Moab don't follow God. That's the whole reason the Israelites weren't allowed to be um, inter, uh, to intermix with them or to be in the same place with them or to travel with them or to do business with them. They were separated because these people over here had their own rules and their own gods, but the Israelites had Yahweh and followed God's way. So they didn't, they didn't even associate with each other. They were actually enemies. So she could have just gone back, right? She could have done things her own way. I'm sure she knew how to do those things. She had been a part of that culture until she came back with, with Naomi. But she didn't. So here's, in verse 10, here's what Boaz says. He says to her, The Lord bless you, my daughter. You are showing even more family loyalty now than you did before. For you have not gone after a younger man, whether rich or poor. Now, this is a really important line, okay? He hasn't said yes yet. He hasn't said no, but this is what he says. He says, the Lord will bless you because you 
showed a lot of loyalty and a lot of determination when you came back with your mother-in-law instead of staying in your land, but you came back with her. And that was really loyal and a really good thing to do. But now you're showing even more loyalty to your family because you didn't just go after some young guy more your age or some young guy that you could start a life all over again with. Instead, you're following this kinsman redeemer, the family redeemer rules. You've come to me, the, your closest relative that you know of, and you're requesting that I become your kinsman redeemer so that Naomi can be taken care of, the family can stay in, the, the land can stay in your family. You're following these rules and regulations or these ideas and, um, and plans that God has given you. So bless you because she could have gone the other direction and done some other, gone with some other person. So then in verse 11, he says, now, don't worry about a thing, my daughter. I will do what is necessary, for everyone in town knows you are a virtuous woman. He says yes, right? She's like, woo, yes. Risk pays off. He says yes. Every, he said, I can be your kinsman redeemer because everybody knows that you are a virtuous woman, that you follow God's plan, that you do what's right, okay? So he isn't going to be ashamed to, to marry her and to be her kinsman redeemer, all right? Feeling good right now. And then the next verse 12, always got to be some drama, right? So here we go. But... While it's true that I am one of your family redeemers, there is another man who is more closely related to you than I am. That's a problem because he gets first choice, right? So now there's two people who like each other, who know that they could stand to be around each other, who are virtuous, who like you know, who follow the same God. They decide, yeah, we'd like to get married, and then there's someone who, by rule and tradition, gets to say. Yes, first, okay? So, we got to see what happens. So, in verse 13, stay here tonight and in the morning I will talk to him. If he's willing, to, willing, willing, if he's willing to redeem you very well, let him marry you. But if he is not, then as surely as the Lord lives, I will redeem you myself. So, he's going to marry her, all right? So, she at least, there is hope. Hope for redemption. Verse 14, so Ruth lay at Boaz's feet until the morning, but she got up before it was light enough for anyone to recognize any, each other. For Boaz had said, no one must know that a woman was here at the threshing floor. Then Boaz said to her, bring your cloak and spread it out. He measured six scoops of barley into the cloak and placed it on her back. Then he returned to town. So a couple things happened here. He keeps her safe, didn't send her back in the middle of the night in the dark, right? Stay here. He gets her out of there before someone sees that she was there so that nobody can say anything bad about her. He makes sure that her mother-in-law has food, right? So he takes her cloak, fills it up with some food, and says, take this back to Naomi. And then he goes to town. Because remember, what's he got to do at town? He's got to find this other guy, right? So he's heading into town. So now you can imagine Naomi, right? She's pretty excited. She's a little bit scared, and she does not know what's happening. So she's back there pacing, right? Can't you picture this in your head? She's pacing. I hope this is going okay. I hope she's all right. I hope nothing bad happened. I hope he says yes. So she's back at home. So when Ruth went back to her mother-in-law, Naomi says, what happened to my daughter? Now, I'm pretty sure that that just gave us a question mark, but there was probably some exclamation marks in there too, right? She really wants to know what's, what happened. 
Have we been given a kinsman redeemer? Are we going to be saved? Are we going to have this redemption come to us? Are, you know, are, is, are we going to be able to have an heir to the inheritance? Or are we just going to live our lives in poverty? So she's pretty, this is pretty high stakes situation for Naomi because Naomi, we've already heard in the story, she's not old enough to get married again and have another, she's too old to get married again and to have another son, right? So Ruth told Naomi everything Boaz had done for her, and she added, He gave me these six scoops of barley and said, Don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi says to Ruth, Just be patient, my daughter, until we hear what happens. The man won't rest until he has settled things today. So, Ruth just has to wait. So now they're in the waiting game, right? But remember when Boaz left the... uh, he left the threshing floor. He went to town. So now when he goes to town, you have to understand something about the city gate because this is a weird culture, not weird, but a different cultural thing that if you don't understand what the city gate is, you're like, this is weird. Why would he go there, right? So the city gate is the only entrance and exit to the towns, right, to the cities because remember in these days, like picture the Robin Hood movie, you know, where they've got all the houses built around and it's the protection. So they're either gated cities or they have structures Structures built all around them to protect the town, the inside of the town, from people who will be coming in. So if there's only one entrance and one exit, everybody has to use it, and it's an easier protection, right? It's easier to protect one opening than a whole bunch, than an open city. So Boaz goes there, and the reason that he goes there is that everybody enters and exits from that spot in the city, and the city gate is not only like the place where all the merchants put their tables and sell their goods, but it's where people come to hang out. It's like town hall and the mall all put together, okay? So they have the elders, the elders of the city, the, the, the old, older men of the city who have some power. They hang out around the city gate because that means that if there's business that needs to happen, they're there as witnesses, right? So being there as a witness to what's going to happen, um, he ne- that's what Boaz needs because he wants to make a transaction, right? He wants to, to put this legal thing in motion. We go to the courthouse and get a marriage license, right? He needs to go to the city hall in order to proclaim, I'm going to be the kinsman redeemer if you're not. Do you want to? Do you not want to? Let's make this official so we can get married. Or someone can redeem this family and save them if, if the other kinsman redeemer or family redeemer wants to. So they're at the city gate, okay? And the elders are kind of like the city council or the judges. They're the people who, who make the rules and sign off on things, even though they're not going to sign off. You're going to see something um, cool and strange that they do to seal those deals instead of signatures. So chapter 4. All right, verse 1. Boaz went to the town gate and took a seat there. Just then the family redeemer he had mentioned came by, so Boaz called out to him, Come over here and sit down, friend. I want to talk to you. So they sat down together. Then Boaz called over ten leaders from the town and asked them to sit as witnesses. And Boaz said to the family redeemer, You know Naomi, who came back from Moab? She is selling the land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should speak to you about it so that you can redeem it if you wish. If you want the land, then buy it here in the presence of the witnesses. But if you don't want it, let me know right away because I'm next in line and want to redeem it after you. Okay? So, 
The other redeemer, the other man, he's like, okay, I'll take that land, right? I'll buy it or just take over it as the inheritance because land equaled wealth, right? Land meant he could plant on it. Um, they, before, the, um, before they were in the famine, it was probably a fields of something like barley or wheat or some kind of crop. So this was only going to benefit him. He was going to be like making money, gaining wealth for himself, right? But then Boaz adds the kicker, right? He adds the extra little thing. So then Boaz tells him, of course your purchase of the land from Naomi also requires that you marry Ruth, the Moabite widow. So if you get the land, you also have to take the girl, right? And it's not an Israelite girl. It's a girl from over in Moab in the bad, on the bad, across the sea on the bad side of town, right? So that's the game changer for him. So he decides he can't do it. So what the other redeemer says is, well then, if it requires marrying Ruth and taking the Moabite widow, because it continues and says that she might have children who will carry on her husband's name and keep the land and the family. So that's a game changer for this guy, right? So it's not just land, it's a wife and kids. Because remember, they need to have a boy so that the inheritance can follow along, all right? Sorry, Kaylee, I jumped all around on you. So then verse 6, then I can't redeem it, the family redeemer said, because this might endanger my own estate. You redeem the land. I cannot do it. So it becomes official. The guy says, I don't have the means to do this, or I don't want to put my inheritance at risk, or we don't know why, but he did not want to put his family at risk taking over um, the family of Elimelech and becoming his uh, family redeemer. So verse 7, now in those, this is another funny thing that I'm glad we don't do anymore because shoes gross me out, so here we go. So now in those days, it was the custom in Israel for anyone transferring a right of purchase to remove his sandal and hand it to the other party. This publicly validated the transaction. So the other family redeemer drew off his sandal as he said to Boaz, you buy the land. So now it's official. Boaz is in the clear. He's taken all the steps that he needed to take to make sure that there was no one standing in his way in the Israelite tradition of the family kinsman redeemer. So now he can officially become the kinsman redeemer. So then Boaz, once again, he has to make this proclamation, right? So Boaz says to the elders and to the crowd standing around, you are witnesses today that today I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. And with the land I have acquired Ruth, the Moabite widow of Malon, to be my wife. This way she can have a son to carry on the family name of her dead husband and to inherit the family property here in his hometown. You all are witnesses today. So then the elders and all the people standing in the gate replied, we are witnesses, right? It's exciting. These two widows are now going to be taken care of. Someone's come forward and it's going to be their um, kinsman redeemer. So that the elders say, may the Lord make this woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah from whom all the nations of Israel descended. May you prosper and be famous in Bethlehem. And may the Lord give you descendants by this young woman who will be like those of our ancestor Perez, the son of Tamar and Judah. Okay? So there's hope, right? So we've gone from 
the women in the story losing everything, right? They lost their husbands, they lost their land, they've lost, they don't have any kids, they've lost their property, they have to travel back. When they get back to Bethlehem, they aren't in line to be able to inherit any of this. They basically have lost everything. Ruth has to go out and work really hard in the fields and glean and work with the women in the fields to gather up some of the wheat. Now remember, one thing we didn't talk about was that it hadn't been, it, that didn't go to the threshing floor, right? So she had to do the work of the, of the threshing floor back wherever she and Naomi were working, right? So the, the work that was reserved for just the men and the oxen, which obviously she didn't have any oxen because that cost a lot of money, um, we're doing over here on these stone floors in order to be able to, to do, to be able to do the, uh, separate the wheat and from the chaff, she was also having to do, right? So it wasn't just like she was picking it up and carrying it back home and then making bread from it or something. She also had to do the whole process of the threshing. So she's working super hard just to put food on the table, right? So now they have this family redeemer, this guy who's going to take care of them, to save them, to put them back into their ancestry line, to um, hopefully give her a son who then keeps the inheritance in their family. So then the good part, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth into his home. She became his wife. And when she slept with her, the Lord enabled her to become pregnant and she gave birth to a son. So they get married, they have a son, and then and all the women in the town are all up in it, right? They're all excited. They're like, woohoo, Naomi finally got a baby to replace her, her son. She's going to be taken care of. And it ends with this kind of the women of the town being very happy and, and, and in a celebration. So it says, uh, verse 14, the women of the town said to Naomi, praise the Lord who has now provided a redeemer for your family. May this child be famous in Israel. May he restore your youth and care for you in your old age. For he is the son of your daughter-in-law who loves you and has been better to you than seven sons. So what this phrase means is this is a better inheritance than if you had seven sons' inheritances, right? That this one son that your, that your family line is going to go through is even better than that. That Ruth treated you better than if you had seven sons. So, um, Naomi took the baby, cuddled him to her breast, and she cared for him as if he were her own. And then the neighborhood women, again, right, <laughs> they're all together, said, now at last Naomi has a son again. And they named him Obed. He became the father of Jesse and the grandfather of David. Okay, so not only is Ruth blessed with a kinsman redeemer who comes to save her, to rescue her family, her family then becomes part of the line and the genealogy of Jesus. So it goes, she, he is the grandfather of David, King David, right? So then we just get the genealogy at the end. This is the genealogical record of their ancestor Perez, or Perez. One of our professor, our Bible college professors always called him Perez. I don't know the right way to say it, but we're going with Perez. That's my Southern Ohio pronunciation of it. So Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Aminadab. Aminadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz. Boaz, the father of Obed. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse was the father of David. And Ruth comes to a close. 
So what's really cool is later on, if you look in, in the um, New Testament accounts, Ruth is listed next to Boaz in the genealogy of Christ. So there's only a few ladies who get their names listed in that, and she happens to be one of those. So next to and Boaz, there's a parenthesis. It's like the asterisk for the home run record, right? There's a parenthesis. It's the wife, it's Boaz's wife, Ruth, that this child comes through. So we have God taking a tragedy and turning it into a triumph, right? So redemption is the theme of chapter four, right? In chapter three, she has to take this giant risk and it pays off because in chapter four, her family's redeemed. They have a family redeemer, a kinsman redeemer, and they are going to be safe and secure. So you have a story of love and a story of redemption all wrapped up into these four chapters in the Bible. Now, God brought this great blessing. He's, he's protecting their family. He's allowing their family to continue on. And just like the ladies in the village, in that town, kept saying, like, we want him to be famous, and we want you to have this blessing, and we're so excited, it really does happen because all the way down to David, he's going to be, have been told the story of his grandmother, right? And then from David all the way down, because remember history was written down on scrolls by only a few people, right? Mostly this was oral tradition. So Jesus most likely, Jesus is told the story of Ruth as a kid, right? Because that's how scripture was passed on. And she's a really important part of his family tradition. So Redemption comes at the end. Our love story has a happier ending than the beginning. It was in tragedy at the beginning. We're going to wrap up the story of Ruth today with that, that redemption is there, that God gives us this way to be redeemed, to be purchased, to be saved, to have this kinsman redeemer. Next week, Chris is going to wrap up our whole book of, of Ruth with the parallels between all of those to Jesus and to our us and us being given that kinsman redeemer through Jesus. So let's pray, and then we're going to get ready to take communion. Father, thank you for the uh, beautiful story of Ruth and Naomi. Thank you for giving us a kinsman redeemer to save us from ourselves and to give us a way to be redeemed and saved to live with you for the rest of, of our eternal lives, Lord. Father, thank you so much uh, for Jesus, for him coming to die and save us from our sins, and for the redemption that you give us, Lord. We love you so much. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.